As Nicholas said, we transform food waste into high value animal feeds using insects as this weird sort of wonderful conversion engine. Um, the idea being that we produce a lot of food waste, but at the same time, we need to produce more food to feed the world's growing population. So trying to, if you like, use nature to connect two dots um, and working on, if you like, some of the technology side of things to upscale and enhance insect protein as a more functional element, targeting farmed salmon as an initial target market. So we've been working with the University of Stirling up in Scotland, as well as universities of Reading and Cambridge, to work on different types of almost bioprocessing techniques and ways of enhancing insect-based nutrition to target the specific requirements for, for farmed salmon as, a, again, first application. So, yeah, certainly for us, um, I got into this because as a student here, I was very passionate about food waste and it's something which food affects everyone, which is unusual. It's something which at some point um, in everyone's life, it's, um, you know, whether it's supermarket, whether it's studying, it's, it's something which is almost a ubiquitous part of everyone's life. And yeah, it's led to this sort of weird and wonderful solution that I managed to come up with along with a few co-founders here at Cambridge, so also biochemists and biologists from different disciplines. And yeah, I think the idea is that it's a sustainable way of recycling or upscaling different nutrients that we would otherwise throw away or at least underutilize. So happy to be here and looking forward to chatting to, to you all during the session. Thank you very much indeed, Matt. Oliver? Um, good evening, everyone. Yep, Oliver Thane from CAMS Cuisine. feel a bit of a fraud sat here. Um, extolling about a uh, business that's probably been going on for a thousand years, serving food to people. But um, with these two, um, but um, we've we've I started a business in 2001, um, and we've developed a really nice um, smallish SME, I suppose, within Cambridge. Cambridge is certainly the heartland. We've got nine restaurants, uh, and we've we've developed and grown very steadily and surely, I guess, um, <coughs> since 2001. We've only sold one restaurant in that period. Uh, we've, um, uh, we've, we've found that Cambridge is a buoyant, very buoyant market. It's, it's a bit of a red spot in the, uh, in the country in terms of um, the, the sort of people who like our food and in terms of um, the, the economics of the area, so it's a very strong area. And so we found that we didn't really need to go and explore other markets, so we haven't yet, although we may well with our Smokeworks brand. I don't know how many people who... How many of you have been to Smokeworks? But it's, we have two in town now. And we've, we've developed a really nice business, as I say, over, the, over that period. We turn over sort of circa 10 million pounds now. We've, we have a catering business as well, which we, uh, is a, a very different to the restaurant business. So that looks at, we, we do about 250 weddings a year, and we do quite a lot of corporate stuff as well. Um, so that's where we're at. We're, we're, we're looking to grow still probably to about 14, 15 sites in the next uh, five years in total. Um, we don't have any investors, particularly one or two small ones as we've grown, but there's no money behind us, so it's all been built upon debt, which has caused um, some issues in the past, but on the whole, we've been able to borrow the money to, to finance our growth. So that's where we're at. Thank you very much indeed. And Viva. Yes. Um, so um, I'm Viva. I, um, uh, my background is in computer science and human-computer interaction. I started, um, I founded user experience design studio called Dovetailed about seven years ago. And um, over the last few years, we became very interested in 
uh, using technology to enhance dining experiences. So we started designing things like uh, games for kids to play so they would eat their peas, for example. We designed cups that would allow people to kind of interact and create icebreakers and social places like cafes. And over the time, we realized that all the technology that we're kind of designing is, is mostly technology, and we wanted to explore if we can use food as a, as a material to design with. So about four years ago, we um, started playing around with using material, for example, liquid, um, and see if we can construct something that resembles food using kind of edible materials. Uh, so in 2014, we kind of made this kind of huge prototype and 3D printed world's first um, raspberry. And since then, we started um, developing and evolving that technology and patenting it. And now we have a little 3D printer that is kind of like a scarab, little robot that you can put in your handbag, carry around, and 3D print uh, sweet things. You can 3D print savory, even alcoholic. Uh, you can make your own cocktails. Um, and we're looking to kind of put that technology into people's homes and in a way that makes them to, to kind of help them play with their food again and uh, use kind of technology and food as a kind of way digitizing something that you can eat. Um, so it's mostly fun and we're looking to develop this into kind of sustainable business and grow that. So thank well, thank you very much indeed, all three of you. And um, three very, very different businesses, um, some very cutting edge technology, and as Oliver said, some a thousand years old, so everything in between. So I guess um, I'll use Chairman's privilege and start with some questions, if I may. Um, what was the inspiration, to all three of you to start off with, um, what was the inspiration to go into the businesses that you did? Um, was, so for instance, was Oliver, were you a chef? Or no, I like the family, or so? Yeah. No, I, I was in the army and um, uh, got a bad injury, so I came out and I looked around what were my passions. And I actually went into the pub business because I enjoyed beer. I enjoyed sitting in the corner of a pub. And I thought I understood the industry, actually. I thought I had very much had a feel for what was needed and what made a good pub. Um, I had a passion for the beer, not only drinking it, but the quality of it and how it's brewed, etc. So it seemed like a natural thing for me to go into. Um, so very was designed as a consumer, to be honest. Uh, and, but I was never a chef. I went into business with a chef. That was a good decision um, because um, we, we built the business with him for a while, certainly. Then, then sort of the business outgrew that, that particular individual. But certainly in the early days, the need to have that other um, skill was absolutely vital. Yeah. So. Thank you. And um, obviously, when Oliver started, there was plenty of other there's other restaurants. You can see how they work. The other two businesses are very new, and I guess no blueprint from which to work. So, Matt, why entomics and insects? Yeah. So I think first of all, I had a personal kind of passion around food waste. So I'd done some work in a previous job around consulting with FMCG companies and looking at the way it, which waste was viewed with such a really high level of emphasis in those kind of businesses. And I'd worked in soup kitchens and things just at a personal level, and I felt like coming out of the MBA maybe a bit of soul searching. What do I want to be doing in life? And I think food was always something which you know, I had a personal attachment to. And coming into the Cambridge. Um, experience. I actually went to one of the QTech events, so another organization or society run um, here at the university, and 
there was a sort of hackathon weekend which was about food waste and a bunch of weird people showed up like myself and we got into a few groups and were chatting about different ways that we could tackle different approaches and some people wanted to build apps and some people wanted to do kind of charity work and there was really interesting um, approaches and we, I sort of met, you know, I'd met some friends who um, also attended this program and we took a very sort of scientific bottom-up view of, all right, what happens in nature? You have different fungi, bacteria, insects, what other things recycle nutrients or eat different things which we find to be disgusting? And it was actually this really sort of logical, rational approach of actually drawing up a matrix and saying, well, insects, you know, maybe not as efficient as bacteria, but certainly there's a market for, for this kind of end product and there is almost an easier commercialization pathway, which would be something that um, is supported by momentum that we'd seen in other articles and publications that had come out around the conversion ability and the, the safety and all these different things. So, yeah, that was probably the catalyst was a weekend in Cambridge at one of these hackathon events. And the co-founders the co who started the company with me, they're actually still, we're all, we're all still together. And that was the first time we met each other. So a bit of uh, luck, but... I think everyone came with a bit of personal passion around food waste before we started, and it was just a nice, um, if you like, catalyst to bring together those skills which was needed to make this a reality. So, Thank you. And the same question to Varga. Um, I guess I was always interested in kind of exploring the relationship between food and design and how you can design your own food um, and bringing together kind of almost like different disciplines, looking at, uh, at food not from just kind of food, but also how you can design and use technology to, to make something. Um, and as a design company, we used, uh, we did a lot of prototyping and we used 3D, traditional 3D printing a lot. And we started kind of, and kind of looking at why, uh, for example, 3D, traditional 3D printing is struggling to make into people's homes. Um, and that was kind of a, a, an idea that originally we started looking at that maybe we're not giving people the right tools to be creative around 3D printing. And, and that's what we started looking at. Maybe we could create a tool and um, kind of the whole design experience for people to make food and they would want to make it again and again and kind of gives them that extra creativity. Um, and the, and the in, initial inspiration and idea came actually from looking at um, modernist cuisine cooking techniques and uh, kind of traditional 3D printing and also kind of what other types of 3D printing were taking place. For example, what are the materials that people are necessarily using so much to print with? And it, it's kind of set as a challenge and to see if we can actually make something to, to kind of prove the concept. And then it kind of evolved from there. Thank you very much indeed. And sort of following on from your, your comment about the challenges, what challenges have you found in trying to develop the business? Um, I guess Oliver's has been going a longer time, so probably we'll We'll, we'll come to Oliver in a second, but what challenges have you found, Matt, in your two and a half, three years um, of developing the business that have uh, cropped up? Some, I'm sure, were expected, and I'm sure, sure. there was the odd curved ball that you thought, ah, didn't see that one coming, and how yeah. did you overcome them? Well, I think, first of all, we're sort of in an industry or we're taking an approach which is relatively capital intensive for a startup. So from day one, we actually needed lab space, and we needed to build some stuff, and you know, it's certainly more than maybe you can do with an MVP with an app or a software program. So we actually needed to really scrounge around to beg and borrow and, you know, not steal but almost steal. Just different things that we needed to, to just get things off the ground. So I remember that we actually, I think we won a thousand pounds from the business plan competition run by Q and that was like enough for us to buy a couple of reagents and like, you know, start actually doing stuff in the lab which 
we snuck in on the weekends. And I think that was almost just a really difficult first little hurdle to get over because it was this almost little fixed capital cost thing to get over. But I think also food for me, is, the food waste thing has been interesting because food is, I've kind of realised it's actually a really sort of diverse, personal, chaotic, irrational thing. I mean, people aren't sort of always aligned behind what the, the good thing to do is in terms of some people like local, organic, there's, you know, there, there's, there's, you know, sustainability preferences, like what's the, the CO, what's the CO2 throughout the process of this food, like there's different churches within the food world and I think it's been really interesting to kind of learn about, well, even with insects, what's the ethical view on that? You know, people haven't maybe made up their mind yet because it's not really part of our mainstream diets and how would you feel about eating salmon that's been fed with fish meal versus insect meal? So. I think a lot of it has been a bit exploratory and I think realising that there is no right answer but you know, just actually being just like diligent to say that well, we, ha we have a belief that we think this sustainability view is something that's important and even if there's going to be some you know, wiggle room across the way, it's, um, yeah, it's just part of the journey. So I think the idea that food is very personal to a lot of people but it's not one view of the world, it's very, um, very diverse. And competition is there? Is there yeah. intense competition? Not a lot. I mean, you've, yeah. you've obviously got the the um, psychological, like psychological and, and public image of insects versus traditional feeds. Yeah. But there are presumably other people that are doing similar things, or insects we see yeah. coming into the food stream more frequently. Yeah. Well, I think we a lot of people we speak to, it's like the first time they've really uh, heard about insects as a thing or you know production thing. But actually, this, this has been going on for a long time, and in parts of the world, it's actually something which is part of the, the diet and not not new or interesting at all. But in, in terms of product, commercial production of insect-based feeds for, for food and feed, um, as an example, it only became legal last year to feed insect-derived feeds to farm salmon. So for the first time ever, you can actually feed it to fish, whereas before you couldn't. Um, and there's also um, a lot of progress in places like China. We've visited China and you wouldn't believe how quickly and how big the factories go up there. And um, certainly it's an area which has a lot of momentum and we're trying to sort of carve out a niche as maybe being a solutions provider, sort of focusing on some of the enhancement and some of the, the biological effects side of thing rather than just the pure production and low cost manufacturing, which is probably not the best thing to be doing in Cambridge as an animal feed company. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's actually quite exciting because when, I, when you hear about other successes, it actually brings a bit more focus to what we're doing and I think people feel like there's so much room to, to grow that it's not even a sense of competition more than just the industry getting ahead and actually getting through the first couple of steps. But yeah, the EU passing the law last year was actually a really big positive, um, positive change because um, they spent about 10 years really looking through the science and the safety and is this going to be something which we can be you know, happy in our, in, in our food chain won't cause any adverse effects or at least likely to cause any adverse effects. And five of the challenges that, that you faced um, the thought of being able to print food um, was not one that's ever crossed my mind. I would have thought it is fraught with challenges and sign-offs from all kinds of health bodies and such like. Um, what are the challenges that you've found, expected and unexpected? Um, I think the, so we, we weren't sure if this is kind of even a good idea to start with. <laughs> same, same kind of concerns. Um, and exploring kind of what material we can print for that, that took a little while. And again, we very much kind of the whole idea was bootstrapped and spending lots of weekends and trying to find people with the right type of expertise um, and bringing multiple disciplines together. So it's kind of like talking to lots of different chefs, trying to figure out what's, 
you know, what's the smallest droplet size we can go to that still tastes really good. Um, and building kind of getting all the kind of different pieces together to make it into a concept that we can prove that's, that might work. Um, and I think since then it's just kind of building because it's, it's kind of growing into this bigger project, but we still have to figure out how to do different pieces at a time. Um, and we didn't start as kind of like a, a, in a traditional way. We um, kind of like, we are spin out from essentially our design company. So a lot of resource had to be kind of allocated carefully to different projects while still running uh, kind of essentially a design consultancy. Um, but it's, yeah. Uh, one more from me, and then I'll open it up, up to the floor. So thinking caps on, and a couple of minutes of warning for questions, please. Um, from a bank, really. Obviously, new ideas, new business plans, proposals, market research, and everything like that, you have to present to try and um, get some ideas formulated. How many times have you uh, looked back at the original plan and thought, yeah, that worked well, we've had to change it this way, that way, and the other way. Um, and does the business, the, the established ones, bear much resemblance to what you thought it might when you first did those plans? It's a nasty question, I accept that, but have a stab. Yeah. Well, I go first. Yeah, I think for us, we still, um, we have like plans that keeps changing pretty much yeah. every month. Um, we, every month we get new opportunities almost. And, and we've, we work with various advisors and, and kind of um, a judge business call even um, to, to see what's the next step and what makes uh, sense for us, but also kind of keeping the focus because although all these extra opportunities are around us, we need to kind of figure out what's the kind of the optimal way for this kind of th that kind of type of business to move forward. Um, I think that's, it's gonna keep changing. <laughs> I mean, our business has changed massively, I suppose. I, I, I really wanted to run a pub with a bit of food. And it ended up being a restaurant, because the food went really well. Uh, ended up being 70% of the business. And now we are, we are a restaurant business, actually. Although I'd love to run just a pub without any food at all, because that's really easy and doesn't involve many people. Um, people is our biggest challenge. Um, and as, in, as in staff? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, we, we employ 250 people, 120 of which are chefs. Not an easy breed necessarily to retain and look <laughs> after. Um, they're challenging, tends to be quite ch a transient business uh, for them. But actually, we made, we, we, we made a, a massive effort to make sure that we were uh, really good employers. Um, we worked very, very hard. We put a, a really nice vision in place and built some really nice... Um, values around that vision, which made a big difference to the business actually five or six years ago. And we were in Cambridge, Cambridgeshire Employer of the Year, which was a really nice thing to get, and we put a lot of effort into that. And we have a head of people development, so that's a big challenge for us. Um, in, in terms of having where the business started to where it is now, because we're quite a, we were operating in a small market, Cambridge isn't actually very big, it's 120,000 people and the students are here, I believe. and. Um, that actually isn't a particularly big space to have nine restaurants owned by one business. So we've had to innovate within that business, um, within our business, to make sure we're, each site's different. Um, Smoke, Smokeworks was a big departure. I never thought we'd be doing a, a sort of little brand with smoked food, um, sort of American style, with our own sort of English twist on it, British twist on it. So, oh, it's very, very different to how I thought it would look. 
Uh, and we got the catering company as well, which I never imagined doing. So, so quite different. And, and with, um, as you've said, that, uh, that, that there's lots of restaurants around. We all see them in the news. Um, quite a crowded marketplace. All your, a lot of your exposure is to the Cambridge market. Do you see Cambridge as a bit of a bubble that the rest of the country thinks it, it thinks it is, whether it is or not, we won't go to, but do you see it as a bit of a bubble and what you can successfully do in Cambridge, you can't necessarily assume you can then replicate that outside Cambridge? But, but if you go to Norwich, Colchester, um, any towns in the East Anglia, they're all, they're all the same brands on the high street. There are a lot, they're all very, very busy and saturated actually, and you need to be different, interesting, uh, my phrase with our guys is, when you walk into a restaurant, you want it to be familiar. Um, you know what we're doing, we're serving food to you, but it needs to have a twist. It needs something different. And so we work very hard on just being interesting. Um, but sorry, back to your point. Cambridge is a very strong market, undoubtedly. But I still think there's room for us if we can be a bit different, you know, and, and be a bit interesting. Um, I'm not sure there's room for another Smokeworks. And we may have to go externally for that, and we are looking. I was in Colchester the other evening looking for one, but that's where I rarely realise these, these markets are all getting saturated with restaurants. They really are. But you don't operate under the same brand. Each, each restaurant is its yeah. own name. Yeah. Does yeah. that help you be different, or does that make being different a bit more difficult? Well, we're, we're restricted by the buildings. You know, yeah. If you go to the Tickell Arms, I don't know how many people know the Tickell Arms. It's a, lo a lovely spot in a small village south of Cambridgeshire with a big pond. It's very, very different to the Smokeworks near Cambridge Chop House, just around the corner of the Smokeworks. They're completely different entities. One occupies two acres of land, the other's um, 1,200 square foot. So you have to be different, and that's why there, there was a question, I think, about um, why don't we call all our pubs the same, the same thing? Well, they're, they're such different buildings. All our buildings are listed as well. Um, which means knocking them around and changing them isn't at all easy. So, but you yeah. don't see any value in building a brand for your particular enterprise. Well, Smokeworks is the only one which we set up to be a potential brand, um, and we've done a second up near the station, and we are looking, and it's on our business plan, to do a third by September. So, um, sites are an issue for us. You've got to find the right site, and we are looking. And Matt, business plan versus reality. Yeah, I think for us, we were obviously, we came into this sort of by definition very naively because we, you know, one weekend we were suddenly not doing it and the next weekend we were. So we weren't necessarily experts in nutrition or anything. We had sort of some skills with biochemistry and things, but I think we started off very naively thinking that we're just going to kind of connect food waste with animal feed and that'll be, that'll, that'll work. That's a business. But actually we learnt that it's not so much animal feed, but actually salmon feed, which might be the biggest problem given that a lot of salmon up in Scotland, farm salmon, are fed on fish meal, which comes from small anchovies that are wild caught in Chile and Peru and then shipped to Scotland. So, okay, that's a big issue. So, salmon's a big issue. Then we realise that it's not just the protein content, but it's also the disease risk in salmon. So, a lot of issues around pan you know, pancreatitis and lice and different things up there. So, actually, the functionality of the feed, the way it interacts with the health and you know, immune system is actually really critically important too. So getting deeper into the idea of what's in the insect kind of based nutrition that could target these things and then learning that maybe it's actually the freshwater transition stage for the salmon that's particularly stressful that even more specifically that's like the stage where the immune training can be even more useful for later on in life to lower mortality and disease so I think we've always just tried to ask the customer like 
what's important to you? Like, what's, what do you spend money on? Like, what's, what's the issue? So I think we've tried to slowly build up our knowledge and get more and more targeted on what the actual person who's going to pay money because they've got an issue is at the end of the day. Um, there's so many cheap animal feeds and like protein sources and cheap food waste you know, reduction things. And, but having a really strong value proposition that's very targeted, I think we've got there probably you know, the long way because we just weren't industry experts. But the more you speak to customers and the more you speak to experts in the field, in academia, you sort of learn what are the real critical issues. And I think when you ask people, food waste is a big issue, but actually people don't really care or they wouldn't change behaviour unless it was like a huge you know, um, a huge safety risk or something, or in Sainsbury stores if there was, you know, um, the animal byproducts regulators were, were going to shut them down. Like there's certain things which people think is an issue, but actually when it comes to building a business around it, you can slowly, I guess, get more and more information to delve deeper in what's the actual cause of that. And for us, as, in a, very, as a very sort of specific example, you know, freshwater sort of smolting and, and, and past age of salmon, that's, that's a much more specific target for us now than it was just with a generic food waste into animal feed, which it was two years ago. So, yeah. I think the common theme there is that um, we've all got USPs, but they become more refined as the business progresses and the business plan evolves. But there's always, been a, there's always a plan that is, 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 is driving ideas forward. Thank you very much indeed. Right. Um, I've asked enough questions, so I'd uh, be very pleased to have questions from the floor. Uh, if you just put your hands up and we'll try and get as many as we can. I'll go over there because it's the first hand I saw. Yes, please. Hi. Um, given that ideally we prevent food waste to start with, is there a sort of food waste that you prefer to go to so, so you're not accidentally condoning food waste and to fit in with that, that, those ethics? Yeah, no, I think certainly there's almost a pyramid or a hierarchy where it should be around, you know, making the most of the food we're actually generating to start with and getting it to people first. Um, I think for us, it's about, it, it's sort of frustrating because actually there's a technical challenge and there's a regulatory challenge. And for us, the insect that we use, the black soldier fly, or we, f we focus on, you know, it can eat manure. It can eat really sort of nasty stuff, which is sort of outside the human food chain even. And you know, animal byproducts and some of the, you know, rendering industry, like stuff which you wouldn't consider to be competing maybe with, you know, a, a slightly brown banana which could be eaten by a human. Um, in the EU at least, there's very strict laws around what you can and can't feed to things in the animal, in the animal feed chain. So you, can, you can't use anything that's been um, deemed to be in contact with animal byproducts. So even restaurants, if there's a kitchen which prepares burgers next to salads, you can't use the salads because it's been deemed to be part of the animal byproduct chain. So certainly we're sort of, I guess, artificially forced, at least in 2018, to take food waste or at least focus on food waste, which it's probably too good to be using. But at the same time, I guess I've become a little bit more world-weary or cynical about you know, the, you know, how big the food waste problem is. I think there's a lot of charities out there who are doing a great job, but the amount that they can physically take and the amount that they can be the amount that are actually currently being able to um, get to people needed to eat straight away is it's a tiny fraction of the stuff that gets wasted and it's really depressing but I think certainly we've seen other reduction initiatives be really effective. I think logistic chain, supply chain efficiencies, some of the we've worked with the supermarkets on ways they're kind of working from you know farm to direct to consumer apps and different delivery systems which makes the most of stuff which might just go rotting on the, the farm kind of shed floor. 
But yeah, it's like I said, it's so complex because we kind of always thought of the home food waste bin, like the green bins or the, the, the brown bins as the source of this would be perfect because it's already rotting and it's, it's pretty gross. But yeah, you can't even use restaurant waste you know, for what we're doing currently, even though in places like China and South Africa, of course you can because there's no regulations. The EU is um, just very strict. I think the BSE crisis was a really big um, milestone in terms of generating regulations that really protect mm. against things like prion transfer. So we're working within... The, I guess another comment would be that food is just a very regulated thing in general, especially food waste, especially animal feed. So we're trying to work within maybe an artificially strict environment because it's so new, this industry. But even though in the future this thing has a potential to move into much more non-competitive sources of food waste. But I guess the cynical comment would be that, you know, I, I look forward to the day where we're actually not able to get the restaurant waste because it's being used for actual human food use. Um, but, yeah, I've, I've certainly learned a lot about that world and how depressingly difficult it is or, you know, hard it is to actually make valuable things out of food that's about to go off. So, yeah, it's, it's a really interesting and important area and um, we're, we're certainly hoping not to be even in there in years to come, but we find ourselves just kind of having to innovate or at least get our business started on that, that, kind, of feed, on that kind of feedstock. But long term, do you, do you hope to be able to focus on the less avoidable food? Exactly, yeah. Well, that's, that, that's the way it should be. I think that um, in the future, I think the idea would be that it's actually not accessible for us because it's too high value or it's being used by someone else. That's, that's almost the sign of success. It's not about a choice. It's about, well, actually, it's a commercial economic decision that someone else is going to rather either you know, give it to someone else for the, for the branding of CSR or some of the, the other benefits that come with that. Certainly insect-based feed should be at the very bottom of the chain. And technically it can be, but regulatory hasn't really caught up yet. So again, just a difficult thing to be dealing with as well. Thank you. I guess just an aside to that for um, Oliver, who's running restaurants, do you see the chefs or, your, or the management trying to actively reduce and reuse mm. food waste, not reuse food waste, but reduce food waste and find ways to Yeah, waste certainly. Less. There's obvious stuff like when you're trimming steaks, you use that in, in I don't know, a suet pudding or something yeah. like that. There's obvious stuff. Um, we, we do recycle. Oh, I don't know what that means. But we, we put all our food waste that comes off plates into a special bag and it gets taken away once a week. I was, I was saying to Matt earlier, I don't, I'm quite cynical about what's happening to that and whether it is being recycled or, or what's happening. But we do that, and actually not, not that many restaurants are doing that. So we are doing our best to... But, yeah, uh, there's a huge amount. Yeah, there's a huge amount. It's a bit, a bit depressing, really, actually. And it's something... We've actually looked at maybe, in an effort to be more sustainable, putting some more vegetarian... I mean, fundamentally, we're actually quite a meat-based restaurant group. You know, Cambridge Chop House, um, St John's Chop House, Smokeworks, it's quite, they're quite meaty restaurants and we are actually making conscious effort this year to really try and introduce some more healthy, some more greener, some more veggie options, I guess, actually, into the menu. And, and I think just another example of the, the interesting kind of challenge of food waste is a lot of, um, there's a technology called anaerobic digestion, which is probably where most supermarket and a lot of the food waste would go to today. Um, but a lot of those plants were built with the idea of taking food waste and it's very sustainable and you, you're sort of generating biomethane and it's good stuff. And it is, it is a, a step forward genuinely, but I think you realise that actually it's cheaper 
for the operators to often go out and buy fresh maize, so pay a farmer to go grow a fresh crop to put into his biodigester because it's actually a higher methane yield than wasting time trying to mess around with bananas and apples, which are very high water content and don't really generate much at all. So, and again, that's kind of being propped up by government subsidies, not a genuine intrinsic value creation. So there's those kind of things which would indicate that there's a lot of kind of superficial talk about food waste you know, initiatives, but actually it's very difficult technologically to transform it into something else. And reduction and redistribution is probably a much more efficient way at the source if you can if you can do that. And so certainly for us, we look at anaerobic digestion as maybe, you know, that's the that's the gold medal standard in in disposal. And if we can generate more value than than methane, which is pretty cheap and again government supported anyway, um, in this case, then that's probably at least a good target for a business plan or a, to make it to make sure it's commercially viable. Uh, there's a quick question here. I'm curious to uh, understand how you bootstrap such uh, disruptive uh, technological innovation uh, as those developed by uh, Dove, uh, Tilt, and um, uh, Antomics. Thank you. Um, for us, it was kind of. Um um, I guess reusing the resource that we had and working with the resource. Um, so kind of like people already in the team had dovetailed who had certain knowledge and also kind of working with a few universities. Um, and applying for grants, that was kind of classic bootstrapping for us. Um, but to scale it, to take it to the next level, we are looking for investment because we're kind of at the point where we can't continue bootstrapping, otherwise we kind of move too slowly. Um, and you have to make that decision at some point whether you want to go faster. At that point, bootstrap doesn't quite work anymore. Yeah, I mean, we we um, we actually built like a climate-controlled little chamber in my my co-founder's bike shed, you know, and that was just using some 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 like some like mesh that we bought from the store and a couple of plastic trays and you know a few lamps and like heating elements. And you know, I think even with that, we sort of we're just trying to test, can we actually do this, or is this ridiculous, or I don't know. And yeah, you actually say, well, we can, we can <laughs> grow a colony of flies in Cambridge, even though it's probably in the middle of winter and it shouldn't be happening. And yeah, just those little things, I think, were for me at least a validation of maybe, okay, this isn't ridiculous, and the next step, okay, we try and go to the lab and do a few interesting things around nutritional analysis and see what we've got. And yeah, I think, first of all, um, just never buy anything new, just, you know, there's a whole the hierarchy of like just borrow it from a friend, you know, beg for it from someone else, just, you know, lease it or lend it or whatever. Um, I think just realise that even like a couple of hundred pounds can go a really long way if you're really focused on what you want to get out of it. And I think you can, you can almost prove to people quite a lot and you show that you're very committed to it just by putting in a lot of, you know, sweat, blood and tears or whatever and just a, a little bit of investment because with a nice you know, set of results or a nice PowerPoint deck with a few photos. I mean, that's all you kind of need to at least start the process of maybe getting investment if that's what you need or at least getting customers or early pilot stuff. Um, that's all we had when we first got our first investment and we won a few competitions. We just simply had a very small scale system. We had very enthusiastic, committed people and people said, oh, okay, that's probably gonna be something which these guys might do well at. And you know, it, it's very, it did start literally in the backyard 
and um, some angry neighbours and just, you know, just apologise for everyone but just keep doing it kind of thing. I don't know what bootstrapping is. What's that? <laughs> What's bootstrapping? Is that sort of getting a leg up? Just trying to not spend too much money to so, try so and spend too much money. <laughs> to at the start. Okay, so, so, well, I mean, we've grown very steadily and surely, really. We started our, you know, we, we much like Matt, begged, borrowed and stole for our first restaurant. And we, we've grown, that was a freehold, so we were able to borrow against that. But in terms of product, I remember Smokeworks was quite interesting because we, we went to London on a sort of hunt to do a burger pub. We wanted to do a, a pub in Cambridge with, with a, this was seven or eight years ago before burgers really took off. Um, and uh, we came, we went into a great place called Pit Q. I don't know how many of you Pit Q. It's a ter terrific smoked restaurant in London. We went in there and said, we can do this. So we went back and we tried to smoke food in a rationale, which is a particular type of oven. And it was, it was very, very difficult. And we, we begged, borrowed and stole a, a leather smoker from someone from his back garden. And we tried it in that. And then we all sat around and tasted it. It didn't really work. Um, but we thought, well, and then, of course, we went and saw people who are doing it and went into their kitchens and asked them, literally walked into the chef's kitchen in one place in London in particular and said, how, how are you doing this? And the chefs are very good. They sort of showed us around on the whole. And, and then we just bought a couple of American imported, we imported a couple of American ovens and just thought, we can do this. So, yeah, you have got to um, be innovative and, you know, have the passion for it, I guess. Thank you. Um, I've actually got two questions, one for Viva and one for Oliver. So my question for Viva is about the actual technology of 3D printing food because the 3D printing technologies that I know of, they all rely on the fact that you heat something up and it softens and then you extrude it or inject it or do whatever um, and then it cools down and it solidifies again. And most kinds of food don't behave like that. So what I'd like to know is how you actually do 3D printing of food and also I have a question for Oliver, and my question for Oliver is, I've been in Cambridge for quite a long while, I've seen lots of restaurants come and go, can you throw any light on what makes a restaurant stay in business and what you have to do to make a restaurant that's going to last and not just going to go bust mm. as soon as business starts to get bad? So we um, invented a slightly different technique. We jokingly, we jokingly calling it verification. Um, and it's a technique where we take a liquid and we encapsulate it into small droplets. And then those droplets connect to create a shape. And we, we apply layer by layer technique. So there is no heating, although we started with kind of, like we explored different techniques. But um, we wanted to create a technique that works at a room temperature. So you don't have to wait for something to be kind of treated or cooked or cooled afterwards. Um, so it's, it's a completely different technique, but it works on the same principle of 3D printing. And it mostly only works with liquids. That's, that's kind of what we specialize in. And at the moment, the way we're looking at it, it's not kind of printing every meal. It's accessorizing meals with very intense flavors. I think it's energy more than anything. It's the it's the people in the business throwing energy at it all the time. You need to you need to providing you've got a product that people want on the whole and you're in a good spot. Um, providing you keep the energy up and keep the interest 
Um, we have something called front foot meetings every six months in each restaurant and we think of ways just to be more interesting and make sure we are being interesting to the consumer so they do come back. Um, but a critical thing in, the, in, in our industry, perhaps the most, is consistency of the offer. So it's, it's without, being, without being boring, it's, it's, you're getting the same standards when you come in. And I, have, I had someone at the cock, up at the cock at Hemingford, which is one of ours the other day, saying, look, I've been, sorry, I'm not just saying this to blow our own trumpet, it sounds terrible. But he said, oh, I've been coming here 15 years and it's, I've never had a bad meal. I said, you will. You will have a bad meal, we're humans, it will happen, but please just remember your, your other, you know, 50. And it's a, it really is about being consistent. So set your stall out, be innovative, keep, keep, keep interesting. It's that familiar with the twist I mentioned earlier. But I think um, consistency is utterly important. And of course that comes through the people and your suppliers. Um, the people element is so strong. If you've got consistent people, you have that smile, you'll have that familiarity, you have that relaxed approach, but professional and knowledgeable. There's so many things that can go wrong in a, in a, in a restaurant, if you think from the field to the plate, and actually to the departure. And there's so many little elements, and you've got to be, you've got to be really on it and throw a lot of energy into it all the time, actually. Yeah. But you're right, there's a, there's a lot, aren't there, that that, um, there's a lot of big brands that come and go, that lose their energy and, and disappear. We can all name brands that were big 10 years ago that have just completely disappeared. Um, so. Okay, thank you. Yep. Hey, I'm Michael Anderson. Nice to meet you guys. Uh, quick question. So I see, and this is pretty much a common pattern amongst startups, it sounds like you guys don't necessarily have a really defined, tried and true formula for success. It's kind of try and try and don't give up, keep going, keep going until you finally have that success. Be as innovative in terms of the process as possible. And very creative ways to get to the success you've had. Um, so would you, one, say that's true in terms of, I guess there's not really a formula, it's just try until you get there. And then two, is there a point where you throw in the towel, where you say, okay, we, you know, we actually have gotten to a point where we can't move forward. Um, yes, let's say you, you try until you see that something might happen. So for example, we internally had so many different ideas for food tech, and this is the only one that we're taking much further than all the other ideas. Um, and I think internally we build the culture where we just constantly coming up with new ideas and trying them out um, in a kind of frugal and agile way uh, to see if they work. And if they don't, it's just kind of being prepared to let them go very quickly. Um, so uh, my, our story is, you know, we, we started that one pub and we made sausages. That was the hook, beer and sausages. And so we've developed from that. So we keep, and then, and then, the, as I say, we are a meat-based restaurant, but our next pub, we also did the sausages, and they work very, very well. And, and then, but we've changed that. We, know, we, we still do make our own sausages, actually. There's still a nice thread that comes through the whole business, and it still, it's still, it's still sort of lines the business to, ex, to, to an extent. So, but, um, yeah, it's, it's, about, it's about, as I said earlier, it's about the energy into making sure you're on the front foot and showing interest all the time. 
But is there a point where you throw in the towel? We threw in the towel in Ely, and then the, we had a pub called the Boathouse in Ely, and it just it just was too hard to too hard to um, staff. It was too transient it was in the summer. It was the summer-based restaurant. It was too hard to staff and too difficult. I'm not sure I'm answering your question. No, um, I think that's pretty good. It was well. It, it's, it's it's such an interesting journey, and and you 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 do progress, and you look back. I'm I'm looking back now, and we're so different to how we started. Um, but it all sort of seamlessly kind of happens, and you have you know you have lots of trips along the way. But it, it looking looking back at it, 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 because we've grown quite steadily. I mean, uh, these guys are growing quicker, I think, and it's a and it's a more dynamic, much more dynamic industry, I would say. Ours is is a, is a more trodden path, but yeah. Um, throwing the towel in, I don't see that. Um, we did in that one restaurant. But that was just because we actually came down to money, to be honest. This wasn't making the money. And I guess, I guess that's probably what happens a lot of the time. You kind of have to. Yeah, when the money, so you're saying yeah, when the banks that no longer support you. <laughs> 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 hasn't happened, hasn't happened. <laughs> yeah, I think same thing. I mean, a lot of the companies, even if you're an expert in your field, even if you've got like, you know, the world leading kind of guy, there's always going to be some risk or some unknown that leads to movement or different types of iterations. I mean, otherwise it'd just be a consulting firm where you know what you know and you tell other people and that's it. But if you're going to try and build something which has a bit of risk or there's a market you need to sell to, it's always going to be intrinsically variable or, or whatever. So whether you're a tech guy who's built the perfect product, you don't know the market or vice versa, I think it's just the nature of business in general, whether it's a startup or a big company. But I think for a startup there's probably more immediate hurdles to like existing. Um, I think for us, we, I just kind of said to myself personally, I'll give it six months, you know, because I'll know it after six months whether it's worth doing another year, you know, and I think just trying to break it down into bite-sized chunks, you know, first of all, can we even do it? Okay, we, we, see, we, we can do it. Is it even worth doing it on a big scale? Is it worth, you know, people investing? You know, you get to a certain milestone and you say, yeah, actually, it's enjoyable still and it's challenging and there's also an opportunity here. So I think we've always just tried to, yeah, just, just try and always, can, you know, each year, just to sort of say, yeah, it's still, it's still on track or it's still worth doing and people are still excited to be here. I don't know. It's, I guess there's just, there's just much more variance. I guess the variance is just much more amplified because of the small, small size of the company and the higher, the higher degree of risk maybe because there is no capital behind you or, or usually no capital behind you. And oftentimes it's an idea which may be just a bit weird or innovative or, you know, it's hard to convince people, at least to start with, it's going to be valuable to them. So, yeah, I think, at least for me, I sort of grew up in a family, for example, where my parents were teachers and I didn't really have any entrepreneurial, you know, friends or extended family or, so that was actually quite a new world for me. And I think the idea would be that a lot of people, you know, failure is actually a pretty, you know, professionally and personally devastating thing. And um, I was actually in America for my undergraduate degree. And I think even being in America, for example, you kind of see people maybe not caring as much if you try something, you fail and you move on. I'm from Australia where maybe it's a little bit more conservative where it's actually seen as like, oh, you must, mustn't be very good at what you do. So I think it's just, yeah, just being, I guess, taking the first step and you can make something a success, whatever it is. There's people who do very, you know, um, quote unquote, you know, normal things that make a lot of money because they're simply good at what they do and they try hard and they've got a good way of presenting themselves. So, yeah. I think that, you know, I've sort of learned at least at this stage that maybe it's, you know, it's not, maybe I would have been 
regretful of not trying it to start with rather than if it fails next year. I mean, okay, sure, I gave it a good crack. So, Thank you. Hi, my question was for Viva and Oliver. Um, what I found interesting was, um, Oliver, you've taken something that's, you've taken a business model that's been around for centuries now and you're trying to to break the mold and, and innovate with food, whereas you have taken something that's blockbuster next generation and trying to get that into the mainstream. So I kind of found that really interesting. Do My question was, would you, um, what do you think the next 10 years look like in terms of dining experiences, taking something mainstream to innovation and the opposite, innovation to mainstream, what do you think are going to be the next, uh, how would you commer uh, commercialize and where do you think it will fit into the main uh, customer sort of experience in terms of bringing something new in? Uh, and do you think those lines will ever intersect um, with the kind of business models you've got? Shall uh, I go? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I, uh, the next 10 years for our industry, uh, you'll find that I, I think that um, as more and more people eat out, um, there'll be more and more niche. If you go to London, there's lots of um, single product um, restaurants that are just focusing on one item, like Flatiron. I don't know how many of you know Flatiron, but they sell Flatiron steaks, nothing else. Bit of popcorn as a starter. And so... I think I, you can maybe see that the sort of market becoming more focused, but I say that, and yet still the pizza, pasta, burger places are still ZZs, are still taking up the high street, aren't they? So I think our industry is, is going to be very difficult to, to move out of that more traditional serving, trying to serve more interesting food, of course, and more healthy food, certainly. I'll definitely see a big in the next 10 years, we'll push towards that. I mean, we have to, don't we, really? Um, and so I see that happening, perhaps, as a crossover with Viva. I mean, uh, I'm fascinated by what Viva's doing. I was talking to her before we started about, because with our catering company, whether we could do canapes, and that would be amazing. And I thought, when I was just had a look at what Viva did in the week, actually, about whether you could do a restaurant based on it and wouldn't that be amazing and just uh, yeah you've got she's got me thinking actually she really has but I'd, lo I'd love to see that crossover and I think it has to kind of happen because our industry actually not a lot of there's been innovations yes of course and we all, all try to be interesting but there's been no real change has there there's still kitchens throwing food out people running out the kitchens putting you know paying the bill the same way pretty much and it's, you know, not, nothing's really changed for a long time. So this could be quite exciting. What about, what about Deliveroo and stuff and all these? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. What's, what's kind yeah. of your, I don't know, what's that world look like? Or yeah. sort of tapped out or there's companies that aren't sort of doing so well? Yeah. No, it's an interesting one to take. It bothers me slightly because it, does, it, does, it does it affect our sort of brand in inverted commas when, uh, you know, some food's been in a, in a bit of plastic for 10 minutes? Bouncing up and down in someone's backpack. Um, I, I, so I'm a little bit. We do do it with Smokeworks because it's much more transferable, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm a bit reluctant. We have started at St John's Chop House. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that, that it's a, it is a massive growth part of the industry. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and um, we've been approached by Deliveroo to do a just a delivery box. 
and you're just chefs cooking in a box, and then it's, so it's just takeaway. So you're just not, there won't be no restaurant involved at all. It doesn't excite me, I've got to say. I, I love the idea of people coming in, you greet them, you sit them down, you give them an experience. Just chefs cooking away and throwing out the bat, and it gets. No, it th doesn't excite me a great deal, but it is certainly a growth part of the market. Definitely. Yeah, good point. Yeah. Yeah, so um, the way we're looking at food experience is more kind of at the table. So, um, and we're exploring both kind of restaurants, how chefs would use this, and also how people would use it at home. So at the moment, we're focusing very much on more kind of technical chefs at home and what they can do with this technology. Um, but moving forward, we're actually seeing this potentially disrupting uh, restaurant business in different cultures as well. I think in Europe, the kind of restaurant, the way we dine in restaurants is, is still quite conservative, but we're looking more like at Asia and how people interact with their food as they potentially you know, become makers of the food or, kind of, or adding finishing touches that have been designed by the chef but then kind of delivered by the person. Um, dining. Um, I think it becomes more kind of um, interaction between the food and people become makers themselves. And I think there's quite a lot, quite a, quite an interesting trend around particularly younger generation um, who we call potentially kind of thrill seekers. So they would go and seek out very interesting food dining experiences like pop-ups or they will order kind of um, meal boxes that are kind of like has all the right ingredients, but they just finish off preparing the food. So we're noticing the trend that people want to be involved in the making of the food, but not necessarily all the way from beginning to the end, but like a certain component. And we think technology has, has a play, kind of a role in that, in that experience. Can I just make a comment? I mean, Heston Blumenthal is well known for doing really creative stuff with food, and those top, top chefs. Is, if, have you spoken to those sort of guys and just seen if there's any interest? Yeah, yeah, we're yeah, talking. yeah, yeah. So the challenge for us with working with chefs is when you bring in technology, uh, chefs feel that it's kind of taking over the role because chefs are more like artists and yeah. then you have this kind of technology replacing some of the art. Yeah. We're always finding that kind of, yeah. that's the challenge for yeah. us. Yeah. Yeah. Hi, I'm interested in ethics and sustainability in the food supply chain. To what extent do you think this is going to become mainstream, um, you know, become as ubiquitous as the free range egg, for example? Um, talking about, you know, making sure that animal welfare, food wastes, um, ethical sourcing, all of, all of these things. Do you think it's a, a gimmick, a fad, or are we seeing a, a long term trend to the mainstream on these things? Sure. Distracted at me, I guess. Um, actually, all of you. Yeah. Um, but yeah. Yeah, I think um, I think there's actually a really powerful. I mean, for example, we, if if we were a feed company, we'd be selling to you know feed companies and salmon producers like salmon farmers. But actually, a lot of the push from the sustainability side of things comes from the supermarkets because they're connected to consumers, and they have a really big stake at what sort of gets fed or what's like in their supply chain. So they're the ones who actually set the policy. So we speak to Waitrose quite regularly, and they actually have a policy group which defines exactly what can and can't be fed to people they have contracts with. And that's actually like a big stick kind of diplomacy thing around we care about sustainability in a real way, and you guys want to make money and like lower cost and things, but actually there's a limit because you can't use that thing to feed your free-range chickens or whatever. So 
I think we've actually seen that some are better than others. I mean, Waitrose seem to be quite good, but others maybe it's a bit more talk, and if they can avoid it in real life, great. But I think um, it is increasingly important because people are, more, people are more aware now of what goes on. I think, I'm not sure if people have actually been inside a free-range poultry shed. I mean, there's not much free-range going on, let me just tell you that. Um, they have the option to be free-range, but they basically have it so that, like, it's a nice, comfortable shed with a cold door leading outside, and not many actually go outside. So I think the reality is often, you know, people, they know what they know through maybe Facebook or a documentary and stuff, but increasingly people know more. And with salmon, for example, up in Scotland, there's a lot more publications around the actual health or the benefits of farmed salmon versus wild, and what are the real trade-offs between, you know, some of the, the diseases and some of the things which may be affecting farmed salmon and not wild. So I think information has been, for me, probably the biggest thing because it drives supermarkets to act. And when supermarkets act, it sort of filters down the supply chain because there's actually a real big stick incentive rather than sort of the, the brochure kind of, it's happening, just don't, don't ask us about it. So I think in a very sort of capitalist way, I think it's actually consumers who are demanding things that get things, gets things done at the ground level because suddenly managers and other firms have directives from their bosses saying we're going to lose a contract if we don't overhaul our whole, our whole practice. And... There is, there is innovation going on. I think the EU and the UK is generally fairly progressive. Um, you know, even looking at the, in the US, some of the practices over there are probably a little bit behind what the standards in the EU are. But um, yeah, it's, it's a directional trend, but it's still a lot of, I think it's, we're still probably behind where people think we are in terms of the actual stuff that's happening on the ground. And um, again, this is me kind of coming from a banking and finance and consulting background and just kind of being thrown into this world a bit and it's actually quite interesting to learn about you know what is a free range egg like what's the actual classification that means I can print free range on my on my packet and what's the trade-off I need to make in order to make that happen so it's actually it's an economic equation like most things um, soil association what's organic there's always if you look at the, at the fine print there are certain pesticides you can use there are certain limits you can get by with doing not organic stuff so yeah I think just I feel like you know, going through the supermarkets and the retailers and the people who have direct interaction with the public, that does have an effect when there's a critical mass of people and there's actually real economic consequences of behaviour change or you're switching your buying behaviour or you're going to not purchase this because, you know, again, you don't think it's sustainable or there's issues around the, the traceability or whatever. So, yeah, it, it matters, but it's got to be a critical mass for it to matter enough to actually filter down to what's happening on the ground level. So I don't know if it's a cynical answer, but... Well, we're, we're making a big effort this year to try and be more, more sustainable, and that goes into energy and it goes into other parts of the business. But from the food point of view, we do, we use local suppliers, but something I realise we're very weak at is we, we, we haven't necessarily done... We haven't procured thoroughly, so um, with these suppliers, so we haven't said we want exact... We don't want fine beans... You know, unless you know, unless they're from this country, so we we can't have them in winter. I should know when fine beans are produced. I don't, but the, we can't. We, we we don't want fine beans from. We only want food. Right, let's say 60% of our food has to come from this country. Um, we're not very good at that, I've got to say, and it's some an area where we, as a small business, really need to be much better. We don't check our specs on the meat. I know that for sure, and it's really something we should be doing. All our meat should be coming from certain areas, and we know where, that, where they are, but we don't check it. And 
I suspect that um, I'm pretty cynical actually now. Just, just recently I was at something last week that really made me realise actually we need to be much better at checking our specs and procure better and make sure we're sitting down with suppliers and saying we only want cauliflowers in this, these two months and they've got to be from this country. And we need to be much better at that. May, might make, you know, it makes it hard sometimes to make the food interesting at certain times of the year. But that's where we might have to relax the rules, rules a bit. But certainly we need to be much better at checking where food's coming from. And if we're not very good at that, I really wonder what bigger companies, I, I suspect, uh, there's a, a, a much worse. So there's, actually, there's a lot of work to be done. Yeah. There's actually a, a Marks and Spencer. Marks and Spencer are actually quite good, but there's a, there's a brand of farmed salmon that you buy off the shelf. It's called Loch Muir or Loch Mule. And there's actually no such thing as a lock mule in Scotland. It's just like it's an artificial lock they made up to like have a branding around. So again, I think some of this stuff, it's just, it's so hard to wade through what's yeah. actually real. Like what's organic even mean? Does that, you know, does it mean you're more healthy? I, I don't know. It's something which people don't really have a sense of, you know, what's actually happening. And um, yeah, it's, I think for me as well, just, it's actually a quite interesting battle going back to the scientific side versus local versus sustainable versus organic. I mean, we speak to a lot of people who actually say that, you know, there's, there was a government report that said that organic food actually has no health impacts whatsoever above and beyond normal non-organic food in terms of actual measurable health impacts. Um, and, you know, other people in the academic community would say, well, actually, the GM debate in the EU is actually really hampering progress in terms of getting sustainable food to people around the world that need it. So, again, it's such a complex thing, the f whole food church. It's actually really an awesome thing that there's this debate because there isn't really like this one organic is good, do it, because actually people, you know, have different perspectives on that, whether they're around the world and even GM, I think, you know, the US versus the EU, the law's there. Um, yeah, it's interesting just to hear the, the academics who study the GM technologies and some of the crop science and what they would say to some of the activists and some of the people in supermarkets and, yeah. I think for me, again, it's just been a good learning experience because it's hard to form views on this without having a really deep background. And I'm, I feel like I'm at least understanding the facts and the figures behind both sides of the arguments. And um, yeah, organic's a, a good example because a lot of people probably don't actually know what organic even means in terms of criteria. And just even learning that's probably a good step for everyone to, to get on the same page with. Thank you. So, sorry. Question here, and then I'll come to the lady here. Any more questions? Uh, we've got two or three minutes if people want to. You said that you have uh, a pretty like steady growth model. Do you think that that was like a choice, or was it just uh, like the industry itself had kind of forced you to grow slowly? And I guess vice versa for the other two. If you have a fast growth model, do you think you need to do that, or is that something that you choose to do from the outset? No, that's a really good question. Uh, um, um, I didn't want to get any investor in. I didn't feel I really wanted to be my own boss, or sorry, I say my own boss, I've got a business partner as well, but, but we, we didn't want someone coming and telling us what to do, um, didn't want to give away to any equity, frankly. It just wasn't part of our makeup. We didn't envisage anyone coming in, and we, we still don't to a degree. <clears throat> we are about to do a very small equity raise, actually. But, um, so no, actually, it was actually when we could afford to do another pub. Um, we, we, we did it, so it's very much steady, consistent growth, one and a half, two places, no, one, one and a half places a year sort of thing. Um, 
and it was a force, really. Um, but we were well supported, banks well supported. We, we had two freeholds, which enabled us to, to borrow against them. And when we had sufficient equity to do the next one in that place, we did it. So, yeah. Um, in terms of what we're doing, um, so we, we're exploring different kind of potential partnerships. Um, but at the same time, we didn't want to just kind of wait and see what happens. We wanted to create something. So we started manufacturing very small scale. That essentially gives us kind of early customers. And kind of, so it's kind of slowly building onto this potential um, round of investment. Um, and I think it's, it's exploring options and what's available and also being aware that you need to spend time to protect some of those ideas and go through patenting and that takes time as well. Um, and so we, we kind of like exploring whether we can move faster or moving slow and kind of being a bit more cautious and smaller scale is still okay. Uh, but I think it's, there's pros and cons for both. Yeah, I think for us we've kind of, um, I guess we sort of got to a point very early on where we said, okay, we, if we can be like a feed company and start to like ramp up production and sell stuff, which I don't know, like we sort of thought, saw, saw that maybe is that might get us some earlier revenues, but actually we're competing with China and South Africa and all these other countries where that's probably not the good, you know, Cambridge isn't a great place to be doing that kind of stuff. So we quickly realized that there's a really interesting niche on some of the technology development, and we've really focused on getting that technology right, which would then lead to hopefully scalable returns once we've um, yeah, got that technology out in the market. So definitely a choice for us. But um, hopefully fitting what our strengths are and what the, the Cambridge strengths are. But a bit, of, bit more of a dip in the, uh, that, what, what do you call it, valley of death or whatever they, the MBA kind of school teaches. Um, so my question is mainly for Viva, but you've been talking about this amazing technology as something specialty that for people's homes, for very fancy chefs. Do you see an application in the developing world for delivering nutrients in your droplets? Is it could you possibly get the cost down so that it could be used for more humanitarian purposes? Um, I think it's possible. This, this is something we're exploring at the moment. Um, I think the, the reason we went into food first is because it's probably a less regulated area than all the other domains that we're currently exploring. Um, but I, I can see that being a technology potentially being used in the developing world for kind of humanitarian purposes, yes. Thank you very much. Uh, so in the last kind of few years, Amazon has moved into offering food delivery services for their users. You know, what kind of effect has this had to small SMEs and, and startups when big business moves in and uh, into the food industry and, and doesn't necessarily need to have, uh, need to bootstrap to deliver? So I guess, yeah, um, hasn't really affected the business yet. I don't think the takeaway, really, you're focusing on the, take, the thing about the growth in takeaway. No, people just seem to be eating out. We, we've grown every year in the last, since even during that recession. Um, people are just spending more of their pound on eating out and, and on leisure food. So I think they're just taking a slice of a growing market, to be honest. I think that's what's happening. I don't know how many people are going to want to sit at home and eat takeaway food. It doesn't matter how good the technology gets to be able to get the food, you know, looking and tasting exactly how it did from the restaurant to the plate. I still think people love going out. I still think there's that element of mixing with people and sitting with people and sharing and 
connecting. So I don't. It's actually the fret. It's not. If your question is, am I worried about it? And I, I do think we we need to work with this uh, as a business and make sure we're not missing out, so to speak. But I don't see it's been. It's certainly a big growth. But I don't see as it being uh, it will have too much of a detrimental effect upon our core business. Because I think people just love going out still. And I hope that remains the case, I think. What do you think? I mean, I mean no, seriously, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a really good question. I mean, do you want to dial up your food and get it delivered and sit at home? Or do you want to go out? I think probably the takeaway is replacing much more cooking, probably, than the, the, the eating out experience, I would have thought. And actually, you'll probably worse end up, we, no one can cook in 50 years' time because everyone's eating. I think that's probably the market it's eating into more than the restaurants, I, I think. So more or less appliances or use of appliances? Rather than <laughs> Sorry, more? Rather than like less, you know, using less of your appliances at home than just... Yeah, sorry, sorry, exactly. Yeah, I've, I think so. I don't know. It's, it's, it's an interesting one, it, and you quite rightly pointed it out, Matt, thank you. That it is, it is, it is a big development within the food, um, the whole, the entire food market at the moment. Yeah, certainly. And as I say, they're developing these boxes where it's just for takeaway. And they're, they're coming in Cambridge. Um, there's six units putting up now. And they're on an industrial estate, um, Coleman, Coleman's Lane somewhere, and they're just going to be chefs in there churning out takeaway food. Yeah. Soon to be delivered by drone. <laughs> yes, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Safer. I mean, have you seen those? I think we've got time for two more questions. I think that's great, a great business. Yeah, I think that's a really, really good business. Um, yeah, and that encourages people to cook, and it's that whole thing. Yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting um, bit of competition for us. You know, we have the Marks, Marks and Spencer £10 meal, where you get a steak and a bottle of wine for £10, don't you, and Valentine's particularly. And that, I think that all these little things have a wee bit of an effect, to be honest. I still think people love going out. And if you're interesting and, and you're on it and you're, you're consistent and the people are nice you're, who are greeting coming through the door, I still think there's a, mass, there's a big market for that. But you're right, I think that is a great business um, and a, a really interesting one. Yeah. Thank you. Only because you said um, 50 years' time. So where do you guys stand on the whole plant-based meat? And have you heard of it from the mainstream and the technology demands you? How far do you think we're going to get with that, basically? Um, we're actually exploring ways to, we're looking at crickets. And uh, I think looking at kind of delivering protein in less conventional ways is really interesting for us. But I think our technique doesn't allow this just yet. I think in the future we're probably looking at 3D printers that do kind of really com more complex um, textures um, and um, kind of nutrients in different representations. I think that that's definitely going to be the future. Yeah, I was just sort of say, like in terms of just mass balance and nutrient efficiency and things, I think that certainly that's almost if you think about where that 
technology stream goes, I think growing meat in a petri dish, like the Gates Foundation is putting a lot of money behind this sort of stuff now because the technology is reaching a point where it's still super expensive, but it's maybe reached a few interesting milestones where it's, you know, at least more, po you know, it's something which at least shows promise for being a system of mass production. So that's interesting. I mean... I'm really keen on other comments that too. I think people are still going to want things that are grown in the soil. And people are going to still want that bit of meat that's, that's got a bone on the outside, I think. I think so. I, I, again, I go back to the base argument that people like going out and sharing. and it's, I think it's a quite a basic thing, I think, for humans to want to eat things that have been grown in soil. Not, not that I don't... You, you, know, you know what I'm saying. I think, but, but certainly on the, on, the, on the meat front, yeah. I, 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 it's the cost. It's the cost as well, isn't it? But I, I certainly want to eat something that, that, I, that has been walking around a field and has got muscle and has got... Yeah. <laughs> and, it may, and it may even be kind of that split of, you know, what's luxury and what's actually sort of mainstream. So it may be, yeah, I don't know, this yeah. is like the, fut the futurism kind of stuff around maybe it's actually... You know, it's a real, it's just a real treat to have a freshly grown lettuce from like a soil-based farm, yeah. whereas yeah. the the paste, the I don't know, the space food sticks you eat, I don't know. <laughs> that, that, that's the kind of stuff maybe with electric cars versus like V8. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So yeah. maybe there's sort of that weird world, I don't know, that's pretty 50, 100 years in, in the future. Twenty years time then. I would always say double it and then probably double it again in terms of <laughs> I don't know, food industry. It's there's still people growing stuff like they've been growing for generations just outside Cambridge. So um, it's, a pretty, it's a pretty long, long cycle thing. But yeah, it's maybe the pace of innovation is, is kind of shifted with some of the stuff that's been happening in the last few years. Any last burning questions? One more. And then we're... Just building on that, I noticed that, or I heard the other day that the Americans, uh, I think it's in Berkeley, have claimed to produce a burger which is entirely manufactured out of vegetable matter and is supposed to taste like the real thing. And I'm wondering whether this sort of um, heavily produced, and particularly with the vegetarian, the vegan movement, is going to catch on. I just wondered if you had a view on it. Quick so it's just the view of... Yeah. Well, as I, as I said a minute ago, I mean, I, I'll, I'll be right behind that, frankly. I mean, it's so much better for the planet, uh, sustainable, terrific. If we, if we can get a burger, because a burger doesn't bother me so much, a steak does. I want to kind of see, a, you know. <laughs> a, a burger, a burger really doesn't. Uh, as long as the taste is there, I don't need to know that burger. It's a, it's a fairly mundane bit of food for me. Um, and therefore, I think that would be fantastic. And I see that, that I think that that'd be terrific if they can get there. And I think I suspect that might be a twenty-year thing, frankly. Yeah, I hope so. Yeah. I think also just the movement towards you know general you know a animal welfare and some of the movement towards you know veganism and vegetarianism. I think it's definitely something which you know it's it's a it's a new type of environment that people grow up with now. And I think there's a new normal in terms of um, it's not the same as our grandparents and. Um, it's something which is certainly just that that's the way that society is moving. So I certainly see that as continuing. Yeah, I completely agree. I think we're looking at kind of plant-based food. Uh, but also what we're particularly focusing is kind of like getting all your nutrients in a single bite. So it's kind of minimizing the amount of food you need, but maximizing the nutrition. What's that due to the digestive system? <laughs> 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 anyway. <laughs>
Lovely. Well, can't have a beer with it either. Thank you very much for all your questions. I think uh, yeah. we'll draw that to a close. Um, I hope you've had a fascinating evening. I think what started off was we were going to have three very diverse uh, entrepreneurs and businesses, which we have. But there's some significant common themes. Um, hugely passionate about their three separate um, fields. Driven, uh, without a doubt. And even in Oliver's words, for a thousand-year-old industry, um, innovation has got to remain at the key um, of their ever-developing business plans. Um, I've got nothing else to add. Thank you very much indeed to the three panellists for all their time and for answering all the questions. Thank you all for coming. I think there's an opportunity for everybody to, to stay and, and ask any further questions between ourselves. Um, but if you'd like to show your appreciation to the three panellists in the usual way, it would be very great. Thank you very much.